Well, he flatters me. <laughs> oh, dude, that's funny, man. I forgot about the deer, actually. <laughs> I got to experience my breakfast twice that day. Um, <laughs> yeah, it had been there for a while. Anyway, awesome. Well, there's a whole lot more people in here than when I sat down and started facing the front, so welcome all you guys um, who just came in. It's uh, great to meet you. My name is Josh, and yes, I was hanging out with Roy up at summer camp. It was a lot of fun, actually. We had a great time. And something that's so cool is seeing um, seeing parents come along to summer camps. Personally, I actually was just, just as inspired by Roy. <laughs> In my opinion, I wasn't anything special. It's all, it's all my team. It was not so much me, but thank you anyway, Roy, for your kind words. But Roy coming along and hanging out was actually really cool to see because it's not often you get parents coming along to summer camps to help make that place such a special, safe place. So that was epic. Anyway, oh, well now I'm more flustered. I don't know what to say. I don't normally get built up so highly. <laughs> oh, very cool. Well, as you said, yeah, I'm Josh. I've got a dad and a brother as pastors, it's true, but the reason I'm bringing that back up is I've also got a sister um, who's a pastor. She's up in Brisbane. All three of us kids are all different cities, pastors in different cities. So... It's a sad day for us, but it's nice at Christmas when we all get to get together. So uh, I'm going to quickly pray, and then I'm going to jump straight into it. You guys cool with that? All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this space, this time that we can come and gather here and just talk about you, Lord, and uh, to share some stories. And I just want to pray, Father, that we can be attentive to your Holy Spirit today, that our hearts will be open to you and the Holy Spirit. And as it acts on our hearts, Lord, I pray that we not just hear it, but we actually go and apply this into our lives throughout the week. So be with us now, Lord, and um, yeah, help us to, to keep our eyes on you, Lord. In Jesus' name, we pray this prayer. Amen. Now, I got quite the uh, introduction to this place. I had no idea that this was like the, is it the first church in Australia for the Evans Church? Is that correct? Ellen White preached right there. I got my Pioneers beard on, ready for the um, Pioneers Church, which is pretty cool in my opinion. Um, Yeah, oh, I've got a clicker. Nice, I was about to start asking for the next slide. Cool. I've got a little story for you guys to start off. Um, Anyone here done Pathfinders? Yeah, okay, if you don't know what Pathfinders is, it's like our church's version of Scouts, right? So it's just Scouts from the Adventist Church. It's a really fun time. And you can do this this thing called Pathfinders, and you go on camps, you learn how to tie knots. I'm sure anyone who did Pathfinders did that knot honor. Um, you go and you learn how to tie knots, you learn how to abseil and do all these really cool activities and so on. And as you work through these different stages of Pathfinders, you sort of get better and better at all these different skills, and eventually you get the opportunity to actually come back as a leader and lead in your Pathfinder club if you want to. And it's this thing, uh, apparently in Victoria, I think they do it the other way around, but up in New South Wales, where I'm kind of more from... Uh, we would do master guides and then junior counselling after. I think it's the opposite, at, at least at one turn of club. Anyway, I'm getting distracted. So either way, there's this thing called, uh, this thing called, uh, what did I, I just said it, master guides. Sorry. All right. I'm getting in the th- swing of things here. This thing called master guides, right? And master guides is basically when you're a student leader and you get to have all this epic leadership training. So I'm going to show you guys a real quick little um, story and a photo, actually, from when I went and did this thing called the PLA Pathfinder Training, right? It's the Pathfinder Leadership Award. And this is what I looked like when I was doing the Pathfinder Leadership Award. I'm the dude in the middle. Where, is the, where am I? There I am. Um, don't ask me what I'm doing with my clothes. I thought I looked sick. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, that's what it looks like. And I was probably 16 at the time, I think. 
And I absolutely loved Pathfinders. I would spend all my time, um, whenever there's Pathfinders going on, I'd spend all my time like just diving headfirst into whatever we were doing. Any honor we were doing, I loved it so much. It was really cool. It's the same sort of vibe from summer camp in regards to there's all these epic activities you get to do. But you go along to this weekend, it's called the PLA Training Weekend. And at this weekend, I was able to actually meet a whole bunch of other young people, the same age as me, from all around New South Wales. And we came together so that we could learn leadership skills, we could sort of do some team building amongst some of the other leaders, and return back to our club with some skills and some tips and tricks that we would be able to use as we lead other Pathfinders. And I remember coming to this um, weekend and having this funny experience. It was something like a movie, actually. I'm sure that many of you guys have had at least a girlfriend before or a boyfriend before. And so you probably understand the idea of like when you see someone, you think, wow, that person's really pretty. And you think to yourself, I'd love to go and talk to that person. Um, and I don't know if you're anything like me, you might have been much more confident, but I was too scared. I remember rocking up to this weekend and seeing all these people and thinking, this is awesome. And as a young 16-year-old dude being like, I wonder if there's any pretty girls here. You know what I mean? I don't know why. That was what was on my mind. It should have been leadership, but it was girls for some reason. Anyway, it is what it is. But I remember rocking up and seeing this girl and thinking, wow, she is so pretty. I would love to talk to her. And I was too shy to do so. And so I spent the next two or three days over this Pathfinder Leadership Award training weekend um, looking at this girl and she'd look at me and I'd quickly look away or whatever. Uh, now I think back, I was like, it's maybe a little creepy. But anyway, um, <laughs> it was a funny weekend for me in hindsight, I guess. But I remember thinking, I'd love to talk to this girl, but I just don't really want to go and talk to her because what if she rejects me, right? What if she's like, hey, love it, but I'm not interested, you know what I mean? And I was scared of what she would say and I also was scared of what others would think if they saw me go and shoot my shot and then get shut down. And I remember it wasn't until the very last day, there was a guy there named Graham Fraunfelder. Anyone here know Graham Fraunfelder? Yeah, he's a really good dude. He's got some really great um, sort of lessons he can teach people and so on. And he was running this team building exercise. And we were out on this little patch of grass out the front of the campground that we were at. And we were all in a big circle and he said, all in a big group. And he said, okay, look around the group. We're all in a big crowd. And he said, look around the crowd, find someone you haven't talked to yet all weekend and go and partner up with that person. They're going to be your partner for the next activity. And it was like someone in a movie, right? I remember looking through the crowd, and I remember seeing her eyes looking back at mine. And I knew, this is it. This is my moment to shine, right? And so it was like someone in the movies that we saw each other through the crowd, and we were walking towards each other. Remember, I'm looking like this. I hopefully was wearing something better than that. We're walking through the crowd, and we meet in the middle like someone in the movies. Anyway, I'm not going to go into the dialogue, but turns out she actually felt the same way about me. She was keen to hang out with me. She was really interested in getting to know me. She thought I looked cool. Don't know why. But um, yeah, I don't know why at all. But anyway, she was happy to talk to me. And it turns out that she was feeling the same way. She was also feeling like anxious of what I might think or what other people might think or if I might reject her. And so we got to spend the rest of the night together um, just hanging out. Um, and then the next morning, we all went home back to wherever we were from. And I remember thinking to myself, I wish I spoke to her on the first day. I could have spent all weekend talking to this girl. Now, at the end of the day, nothing ever came from it. So no, no harm done, right? No harm done. But I wish I had gotten to talk to her earlier. I remember thinking that at the time. I could have spent all weekend getting to know this girl. Anyway, a bit of a random story, isn't it? But it is related to a story in the Bible in some abstract way. <laughs> I really like it because in that moment, I realized something in my life. I could have 
been experiencing something good. I could have been a part of something good and I was holding back because of fear of what others might think or because of the social pressures at the time, right? And there's a story in the Bible which is, now I think about this, this is so different. <laughs> you guys will love this link, you ready? So this is in Luke 23. I'm going to read it out for you guys. So feel free to join me in Luke 23 if you have a Bible's with you. Oh man, how do I link this? Okay, Jesus has just died on the cross. Um, it's not funny, sorry. <clears throat> Jesus has just died on the cross and Joseph of Arimathea has come along into the story, right? So Jesus has just passed away. People have been watching Jesus die on the cross. If you don't know who Jesus is, if this is your first time ever hearing that name, he's a pretty cool dude from back in history. Um, he actually did some really cool stuff for us as humankind, right? He uh, came down here and he actually sort of took away our sins or the bad things that we've done and sort of gave us a second chance at life and life beyond this life here on earth, but actually a life in heaven, which is going to be pretty awesome. So if you didn't know, that's who Jesus is. But Jesus is this guy. He passed away on this cross. He gets crucified by a group called, uh, well, the Pharisees, I guess. They're the ones who rile everybody up. They're like the religious leaders at the time. Anyway, but I like this part. Let's start off at Luke 23, verse 50 to 54. I'll read it out for you. And I'm reading from the NLT if it gets confusing. Now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph. He was a member of the Jewish high council, but he had not agreed with the decisions and actions of the other religious leaders. He was from the town of Arimathea in Judea, and he had been waiting for the kingdom of God to come. He went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then he took the body down from the cross and wrapped it in a long linen cloth and laid it in a new tomb that had been carved out of rock. This was done late on Friday afternoon, the day of preparation for the Sabbath. And as his body was taken away, the women from Galilee followed and saw the tomb. Oh, sorry, that's the end. Yeah, all right, verse 54. I got carried away. It's an interesting story. So we see this guy. We meet this guy, Joseph of Arimathea, right? Pretty interesting character in the way that he actually, he was a member of the council, and he comes along and he, he takes Jesus' body and he goes and he buries Jesus' body. Now, there's only about seven verses total. Put your hands up if you knew who Joseph of Arimathea was already. All right, what about if you didn't know, if you've never heard of this guy in your life? Cool, all right, that's sweet. Well, you'll like this. Because um, a lot of the time, everybody knows, or most people know, that Joseph Arimathea was this guy who buried Jesus, who took Jesus and put him in his own tomb. But not many people know the rest of his story, which is only about seven verses total in the whole New Testament. So I've got a couple of these bad boys for you. We're going to do a little bit of an, uh, detective work on this one and just see what the story is with this guy. So Mark 15, verse 43, talks about Joseph of Arimathea, and it says... Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of council who was himself waiting for the kingdom. Uh, that's from Mark 15. It's pretty cool because it points out to us who he was, right? He was a prominent member of council. So he was like the equivalent of like a politician or like a local parliamentarian or something. Or for those of you who are in the Adventist church or have been in it for a while, he might be like a conference representative, maybe like the church planning director or something. Um, so this is the kind of guy he was, right? For those who don't know, that's Roy. Anyway, <laughs> I think I might have got your title wrong, sorry. Anyway, he was a really cool guy and he was a prominent member in this council. Often it was referred to as a Sanhedrin. It was this group of people who were responsible for all the leadership at the time and so on. And they, they were like the top dogs of their field, right? These guys knew pretty much all their Old Testament at the time. They, they knew it all pretty much off by heart. These guys here knew all the laws, all that sort of thing. People were watching them in the same way that members might watch their pastor and just watch out for any mistakes. These guys were watching their leaders at the time going, hey, these guys here are the examples of what it means to be a, a good Jewish person, right? And so what it means is this guy is really uh, a person of influence that everybody was watching. 
that everybody was um, looking to for an example. So there was a bit of pressure there for him, right? And I want to go to this next part, which is back in Luke 23, because I'm putting together a bit of a picture here for you guys. But he had not agreed with the decision and actions of the other religious leaders, right? So we just read that part there. It's interesting that it makes this point, right? That amongst the Sanhedrin, they had just crucified Jesus. I kind of outlined that just before. But Joseph was actually someone who, amongst those leaders, didn't actually agree with it. He was like, hey, that's not cool that we killed Jesus. And uh, for some reason, he doesn't, actually, he doesn't actually go into it. And that's revealed in this next part, John 19, 38. So if you don't know what I'm doing here, there's four different Gospels, and they're all different stories of Jesus. Each of these four Gospels are like someone's perspective on the story of Jesus. It's really interesting to read them all. Um, John is like a love story between two mates. Mark's like an action story if you're into more like, I don't know, Jason Bourne-style movies or something. Um, Luke is like a detective going around seeing what happened. And Matthew's like, let me help explain how Jesus applies to all the Old Testament. It's pretty cool. That's Josh's rendition of that. Anyway, so right now we're in John 19:38, And it says this, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for Jesus' body. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. So he was actually a disciple of Jesus, right? In other words, he was someone who was following Jesus' teaching. He was just following the leading of, um, of Jesus and, and the teachings of Jesus. And they, uh, these are the three points I just pulled out from those verses, right? That Joseph of Arimathea was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. He was pressured to sort of make sure that he went along with the plan. Because remember, it said he disagreed with it. And he was also secretive in, in regards to his following of Jesus because he was scared of what others might do, right? He was scared of what the other people in his world would think because of the social pressures in his life. It's a pretty um, interesting story, but something has changed for Joseph. Something changed for Joseph along the way that is actually, um, I think, if you really think about what a Sanhedrin member had in their life, you realize that what he went through when he watched Jesus die on the cross was actually a very life-changing moment for him, right? Because he would be watching this man get put up on a cross and he would be remembering things that he had studied all his life. All these prophecies throughout the Old Testament, all these predictions of how the Messiah would come, how the Savior would come and all that sort of thing, would all of a sudden be flooding back into his mind in that moment as he's remembering, hold on a second, this is actually the guy that we, that we have been waiting for. If you read in John 3, I'll just quickly skip back to that. John 3, one of Joseph's mates, Nicodemus is his name, was actually this guy who comes along and says this year, this is in uh, verse 2, he says, Teacher, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are proof enough that God is with you. So this is actually Nicodemus, one of Joseph's mates. They would have been talking about what they've been discovering, realizing you are a teacher, come to teach us. And in this moment for Joseph, he sees Jesus die on the cross and he realizes this is not actually our teacher, this is actually our savior. It's actually our Messiah. And so in that moment, he changes from like, yeah, we recognize you as someone with good authority on some of the stuff that we know to actually you are the one that we've, everything we know about is about you. And in that moment, all of his priorities change. He goes from caring about what everybody else thinks to all of a sudden caring about one thing in particular. So we see it really in his reaction. John 19, 38. Uh, if you ever see a letter after the verses, because I've only taken a sentence out of it. With Pa's permission, Joseph, or he, come, or he came and took the body away. So remember I said that with a Sanhedrin member, everyone would know where these guys were at. If you saw me out in the street and I was your pastor, you'd say, well, I recognize the beard from a mile away. That's Josh. And what's he doing in that shop? Or what's he doing with these people or whatever? You would know what, what I'm doing in my life, right? So when you see Joseph of Arimathea and you go, what's that guy doing coming and taking the body of Jesus? 
Wasn't he part of the crew that just got us to kill Jesus? You'd be watching this happen in front of you going, what's happening here? This is, all of a, this is very out of character for a Sanhedrin member. And it's pretty um, interesting because it's not just uh, Joseph actually doing something nice. Something you may not know is that if you were ever to be crucified for treason or something, which is what Jesus was kind of crucified for, you would actually be buried in like a, I'm going to call it like a shameful uh, cemetery. It's almost like, yeah, all the kind of criminals, all those sort of people get buried in there. And that's where Jesus should have been buried by the standards at the time. But along comes Joseph and says, hey, I'm actually going to take him away and bury him. Now, you might think to yourself, okay, Josh, you're reading into this too much. He's just being a decent guy. He's just burying a fellow man because out of respect for another human being. But I disagree. Let me show you a couple more things. You ready? Matthew 27, Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. So there's a couple of points there which are really, really cool. I'm going to show you guys what a tomb back then would have looked like. He wrapped it in clean linen cloth, placed it in his own new tomb. So the way tomb systems often worked back there was actually kind of like this. Anyone here like history and archaeology and stuff? I'm kind of into it. I like it. My dad, Indiana Jones, I think they influenced me. Anyway, there's probably no treasure in this one. But anyway, yeah. So that is actually what looks like, or it is a tomb. That's what it would look like back then for a relatively wealthy person. On the right-hand side, you'll see it's what's called a body decay slab. Um, apparently, it takes about a year for your body to sort of do its, do its thing. Um, and then what would happen is you would actually come in after your relative has done their time. You'd pick up their remains and you'd carry them through to the loculus in that backspace there. And you'd sort of stack them up next to the last person, right? And so this would happen with your family. As your family passed away, you had like a family tomb system. And you'd bring them through and you'd put them out in the back room. It's pretty interesting, right? And remember what I just said about Joseph. He literally said, I literally said that he had his own new tomb. So Joseph was like, hey, you know what? I'm going to start my own family line. This is ready for me and my family as I go out from here. This is my own new tomb, right? And it would have looked something like this because he's actually quite a wealthy guy. Uh, for contrast, this is more like a poor man's tomb. And this is even better than the, like, the criminal cemetery I talked about, right? This is just like where you might put someone who doesn't really have any family and then they get sort of put away once they're done their business as well. So there's some contrast there. You can see a nice man's tomb, or like a rich man's tomb, sorry, and a bit of a poor man's tomb here. It's pretty interesting. But not only did he give him a brand new tomb, because you might even think then, well, he liked him as a teacher, he was a secret disciple, and he wants to do Jesus a service of putting him in his tomb. Maybe there's something more attached to it. And we see Nicodemus. You mentioned, I mentioned before that Nicodemus and Joseph were mates. We see Nicodemus come into the story here in John 19. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. From memory, that's about 34, 35 kilos or something. Someone with better um, <laughs> conversion rates in their head can correct me on that. But in my head, that's about two bags of cement. <laughs> I'm thinking about two bags of cement on my shoulder. I'm thinking, yeah, that's a lot of weight. And I imagine that if you were to buy these spices, all these myrrh and these aloes, it would have cost a whole lot of money to buy about 34 kilos worth of this. Some translations, by the way, in case you're confused, do say 100 pounds, so don't come to me after and say, well, mine said... Okay, they, it depends on the translation, all right? Anyway, it's a whole lot of weight. And if yours says 100 pounds, then it's even more again. So these guys didn't just give him a nice burial. They weren't just being respectful to a dead man who died on the cross. They were actually stepping out, no longer being secretive, and they gave him not only a wealthy burial, but a very wealthy burial. 
Because this guy should have just been wrapped up and put away with all the other people who were doing what uh, he was accused of doing, treason and so on. But instead, he was wrapped up in a brand new linen cloth. He was put away in a brand new tomb and covered in amazing spices and, and aloes and myrrh and all that sort of thing. These like gifts, these gifts that Jesus was given as a baby, right? This myrrh that he was given as a baby, it's almost like it's linked. <laughs> Funny that. Anyway, so here's Jesus getting a mad wealthy burial. It's really, really cool. And I like this. I like this, right? But I'm going to take it even one step further. And this is a part of the story you may not realize with Joseph. You might think, well, maybe he slipped into the back door to Pilate's place and he got the body and he dipped out the back and he was hiding, right? But no, he actually, there's something more, right? Let's see this next verse. I like this. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. He went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. It's pretty cool because something really changed. He went from being a secret disciple, scared of what everyone else around him might think, scared of the possible consequences on his life for stepping out in faith and following Jesus, scared of what other people might think of him or do to him. And now all of a sudden he is going boldly before Pilate in front of anybody else. His actions are on display for anyone else watching. And trust me, they would have been watching because it was a Sanhedrin member, right? And he steps in and he goes, I want to give this man the burial he deserves. There is something more to this Jesus character. So I like to see this moment as a pre-Jesus and a post-Jesus, a before-Jesus, after-Jesus situation. Before Jesus, he was scared of what others thought. He was, he was cra- caving to the pressures of the world. But after Jesus, he went, nah, it's not enough. There's more to life than the things of this world. There's more to life than the things of this world. So we actually went on to do some amazing things for the early church. You guys may not know this, but apparently to some historians, I've heard some debate about this one, but some historians reckon that Joseph and Nicodemus were wealthy enough to fund like a small city or even like a small country, I think someone once said. I don't know if I buy that one, but all, all I want to make a point about is that these guys were very wealthy, very wealthy. And to know that they would have had that rich man's tomb for themselves, right? It's actually crazy because they talk about these guys as being people who went out and gave all their money for the church. They went out and helped support the church in the early days of the early church. It's a crazy story when you think about it, that they went from being these two Sanhedrin members who are part of the group who actually killed Jesus to then being guys who are financially supporting the early church. It's a crazy story. Something changed in their lives. Something changed in their lives. And um, you might recognize this photo. There's a lot of debate about where exactly Jesus was actually buried, but uh, there's not much debate on where or whose tombs these here were. If you ever go to, I forget what it's called, St. Peter's Basilica or something. No, that's not right. Where's St. Oh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Church of the Holy Sepulchre, that's it, isn't it? Yeah, sorry, my bad. I should have reread that note before I got up here. Anyway, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, it's in Jerusalem City. I've been there myself. It's pretty cool. And I remember walking in there and thinking, well, I've been to three of Jesus' tombs. This might be the one. But out of all the history, right, they actually, a lot of people agree that this place, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, is actually where it happened. And there's a lot of reasons for that. A lot of pagan religions have tried to cover it over and bury it with literal dirt and stuff to try to get wiped off the face of the earth kind of thing. Anyway, that's another story. Come see me after if you're interested in that. Um, but there's one thing they don't really debate much, and that's because they all agree that these tombs here, this space right here, is actually Nicodemus's and Joseph's tomb. They wanted to be buried near the tomb that Jesus was buried in. It doesn't really look like a rich man's tomb, does it? Isn't that an interesting idea? Isn't that an interesting idea? They literally went out so far, giving away so much, they end up buried in these humble tombs, going from like roles of uh, social status and standing to all of a sudden being like, hey, 
Um, we want to give it all for Jesus. We want to give it all for God. None of this stuff actually matters. Paul says it really well. He says, I consider all these things worthless compared to, the, uh, compared to knowing Jesus, to having a relationship with Jesus. It's pretty cool. But I think often we find ourselves today doing the same kind of thing in our lives, right? Where the world is telling us you have to have all these sorts of things in your life. You have to be living a very certain type of lifestyle and so on. For me at the moment, my Instagram for you page is all $200,000 Land Cruiser setups with um, these huge houses. They don't advertise the debts attached to them, but they do advertise all these amazing lifestyle for, and all these hectic skiing trips, heli skiing over skis, uh, overseas and everything. And um, it's funny because I'm sure that each of you have the same situation in your life where there is a pressure around you to be successful or to be wealthy or to be um, more adventurous or to be, I don't even know what. You guys put it in here, right? To be someone, someone uh, gave me an example the other day, someone who's always traveling, for example, and being the person who's the traveler, you know what I mean? There's all these pressures in the world today that are telling us to be a certain way. And often, it's usually to do with either your pride or being better than other people. I guess they're the same thing. And it's often to do with um, a comparison. It's always the comparison between you and other people, right? If you lived in a country town and everyone drove, I don't know, Holden Rodeos or something, and you rocked up in your $200,000 Land Cruiser, that would be pretty sick. But then if you park up next to a million-dollar Bugatti or something, well, not so cool anymore, is it? But the thing is, it's all comparison, right? At the end of the day, this journey never ends. This, this pursuit of desire, this pursuit of whatever the world's telling you you should care about never ends. It ends up at a point where you always just want more. You always just want more. And you might even find yourself in this position where you are a San Adrian member, the top of your field, and everyone knows who you are and you're quite wealthy and all that sort of thing. And for some reason, there's just got to be more out there because it's not enough. It's um, something that I think about often, what the world is telling me. What the world is telling me compared to what Jesus is telling me. What the world is saying that I should care about compared to what Jesus tell me I should care about. I think of a story, actually. Um, actually, before I get into that story, I will make this point really, really clear. If this is all new to you, then listen to this part. Forget everything else I've said if you want to, but at least remember this next part. This is something about Jesus, right? That Jesus actually offers you a better life than you could ever make for yourself. In your own strength, in your own works, in your own doing, you could only ever make a life that's maybe this good. But with Jesus, is so much better. And here's where he says it, right? In John 10.10, 10, I love this part. Um, I came that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus came not to condemn the world. John 3.16, who knows this one? Everyone knows this one. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, so whoever believes in him um, shall not perish but have eternal life, right? Who here knows John 3.17? Nice. Do you want to say it? Exactly. In my opinion, it's actually, for me personally, I reckon it's better than John 3.16. But they're a beautiful sandwich, in my opinion, right? He loves us so much, he sent his son to die so that none of us should perish if we choose him, right? The very next one says, for God did not send his son to condemn the world, but to save it. So it's so clear that Jesus is not here to be cranky or to tell us what we're doing wrong necessarily. But he's actually here to pull us out of what we're doing wrong into a better life, into a new life in him, to save us for a life that is to the full. It's pretty awesome. I love it. I love it. And when we step into that life with him, we see it even more in Matthew 11. This is what Jesus says. He says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle, and you will find rest for your souls. It's pretty special. 
Um, I'll finish on the end bit a little bit uh, in a second. There's another part to this verse. But I like this part, right? He's saying, hey, if you're tired of chasing the dreams that the world is saying you should be chasing, if you're tired of trying to prove yourself, or if you're tired of trying to chase success, or if you're tired of trying so hard at work for that promotion or something, and your boss just keeps promising it to you but never giving it to you, he's saying, hey, come and rest in me. The whole world is always going to tell you that you need more, more, more. The world's telling you all these sort of things. There's all sort of pressures out there. But in Jesus, he's saying, hey, relax. I'm all you need. I came so that you may have life and have it to the full. And life with me looks like this. It looks like rest for those who are weary and carry heavy burdens. It looks like a place where you are able to learn from the master, not a master. Right? There's masters in everything. There's experts in everything, right? And they're, funnily enough, some of them disagree. So who's the expert? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, but there's one master out there who's worth really listening to. And Nicodemus knew who it was. He knew he was a teacher sent by God for us, right? And so it's actually a guy that we can come to who is humble and gentle with us, who teaches us at our pace, and he gives us rest for our soul. But he doesn't just give us rest so that we can stop there and never do anything in our life, but he actually gives us rest so that there is something we can go and do. He pulls us under a yoke with him. If you don't know what I'm talking about with the yoke, it was this thing between two oxen. They put a piece of wood over their neck with some thing underneath their neck, and he'd keep them working together as a pair as they would plow a field back in the day. And the idea behind this is that they could work together and keep each other accountable to the path that they're walking. And it would actually be this process they do where they get a mature bull in there with a, with a less mature bull, and they would walk together as the mature bull would teach the junior bull how to do this job, how to actually walk in step. So Jesus is saying, hey, come to me, I give you rest, I'll teach you, I'll help you, but then we're going to go and actually start doing work. And the burden I'm going to give you is light because I'll be walking alongside you with my head in the yoke as well as you. My arm around you, and we're going to be walking together through the rest of your life. It's a pretty cool message, right? I really like this. I really like this, right? So, so far, I've talked about the idea of these pressures in our lives that can often paralyze us or stop us from doing the things that we maybe would like to do or maybe we know we should do. And then in Nicodemus's story, we see someone who actually went through that transformation of knowing, hey, these things here are cool. I kind of have it all, if you know what I mean. But at the end of the day, there's actually more to life. And I found that in Jesus. And we see here what Jesus is actually giving to us. But there's something more than just this. This is really nice for us, right? It's really nice for each and every single one of us here in this room. But I want you to focus on that last bit of this last verse. For my yoke fits perfectly and the burden I give you is light. Jesus is actually calling us out to do a work. And there is, a, there is actually a point to this work here, right? We can get so caught up in chasing the world and everything the world should tell us that we should. Success, careers, all that sort of stuff. But there's one thing that he's actually telling us to do. And that is to actually go out and proclaim that there is something coming. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to get fire and brimstone on you guys, but there is actually something coming. This world is not going to last forever. And the reason this matters to you guys is because if God really is so good, if you really want um, to experience relationship with God for yourself, surely you must understand why it's important that we actually go and share him with other people too. That's actually our role to go and share with other people about the love of Jesus. Paul talks about it as a mission of reconciliation, reconciling people back to God, right? It's this idea that we're actually working in partnership with God to actually bring people into that kingdom. It's an interesting story, and I think about, oh, wrong part of my Bible, I think about um, this <laughs> interesting story in Genesis 7. This is what I talk about with fire and brimstone, don't I'm not going to dwell on it. In chapter 7 of Genesis, right, Noah is this guy, He's been hanging out, it's cool. The world's all going crazy and God has chosen him to be the guy to carry on humankind 
after this massive flood. So Noah goes about building a boat over like 100 years, and we find out later in Second Peter, right? So that's in Genesis 7 if you ever want to read it for yourself. But over here in Second Peter, I've actually got it on the screen for you, Second Peter 2 verse 5, we hear this interesting part about it, right? I'll show you this. And God did not spare the ancient world, except for Noah and his family of seven. Noah warned to the world of God's righteous judgment. Then God destroyed the whole world of ungodly people with a vast flood. It's a pretty crazy thing, right? It's like something from the, you know, that movie 2012. Anyway, it's like something like that, right? And when you think about this, you go, well, that's a pretty wild story. And God sounds like a pretty hectic dude when you read that story. Um, I'll have to come back here and preach another sermon on the God of the Old Testament being a God of love, but <laughs> to rectify some of the damage I might be doing right now. But anyway, Second Peter 2 verse 5, I really like this because it's actually talking about what Noah was doing. At the time, he was saying, hey, guys, trust me, there is something coming that is going to be big, and you better take it seriously. In other words, saying God is coming, and he's bringing something with him, and you better take him seriously. And they were going, yeah, 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 whatever. Like, whatever, man, we're... Cool story, but probably won't happen in my lifetime, right? Won't happen in my lifetime. Who has found themselves thinking, yeah, my grandparents told me that the end of the world's coming soon, don't even bother buying a house, but it won't, it won't happen in my lifetime. I remember when my dad was studying theology back in the 80s, someone told him, Nick, don't even bother finishing your degree, you won't even get through it. You'll come before the end of your degree. That was in the 80s. So I'm not saying he's going to come back today, but I'm not saying he's going to come back never. What I am saying is this. I'd rather be safe than sorry. And there comes a point we've got to realize the best thing you can do is plan as if you've got the rest of your life, but act as if today's the last day of your life. It's a, it's a bit doomsday. Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go so deep into that one. But the idea being, there is an actual calling out there. There's actually a mission out there, right? To go and share this with other people. And there's kind of a timer on it. There's a bit of urgency there, isn't it? A bit of urgency to actually go and share this with other people. Now, I like to quote, um, or sorry, I don't actually like to quote my old friend Ellen too much because it depends on the vibe of the people I'm with, right? But I'm going to quote a lady named Ellen. She's pretty cool. She used to actually preach here <laughs> a long time ago, I heard. I'm only preaching down here. I'm not preaching up there. But she said this really cool thing. She's a great author. I love what she said. You ready? When the professed people of God are uniting with the world, living as they live, and joining with them in forbidden pleasures. This is a bit wordy. Sorry. When the luxury of the world becomes the luxury of the church, and the marriage bells are chiming, and all are looking forward to many years of worldly prosperity, um, then suddenly, as the lightning flashes from the heavens, will come the end of their bright visions and delusive hopes. Um, and it talks about, right after that, in the next part of the quote, it actually talks about the idea that there is a matter of urgency for us, that we actually need to sort of take this seriously. We can write it off as saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll get around to taking our faith seriously, or we'll get around to sharing Jesus with other people uh, seriously. Once I get my house paid off or once I get this promotion and I can relax a little bit more in my job then I'll start doing ministry stuff then but what he's actually saying is hey the time is now there's no actual time to wait for this thing it's actually right now that you're called to do it and it is the people right there in your sphere and if you're worried about how am I going to provide for my life and so on God says so many times throughout the old testament Jesus says so many times in the new testament talking about how he will look after your needs even the smallest of these he will look after your needs right I love that verse that actually says, seek first the kingdom of God and, and uh, then all these things will be added onto you. Wow, I had it in my head about three seconds ago. I've lost it. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added onto you. I'm sure that's it. Yeah, that's it. Anyway, that's the idea, right? If you put God as your first priority, if he's your first priority, you won't actually be worried about those other things. 
You may find yourself like Joseph and Nicodemus at the end of your life, being buried in a poor man's grave. But you won't look back and think, wow, I really wish I pursued that job any harder. You'll be thinking, wow, my life was epic. I dedicated to God. I got to meet some amazing people. And nothing in my life was wasted. Nothing in my life was wasted on things that didn't matter because I was focused on God. So I talk about all this because it really matters to us. In a world where right here in my pocket, I can see what every other 27-year-old person is doing in their life. And I can look at all their success and think, wow, I need to do more. I need to be better. I need to be getting four hours sleep a night and working three jobs and this and that and all sorts of grind set sort of things, right? But at the end of the day, what God's actually telling me is, hey, come to me and I'll give you rest. Take a break from the grind. Come and meet with me and I'll give you rest. Step into a life with me and I'll give you life to the full. It's a pretty cool message, right? To know that he's actually given us an out from the rat race of the world and saying, hey, come to me and I will look after you. You can hold me accountable to that. It's a pretty sweet message. I should finish, eh? <laughs> it's right on four. I should finish. <laughs> okay. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite up Jinnah after that. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We thank you that you're such an epic God. You're so big, so mighty, and so powerful, Lord, and you look after us. For some reason, even though you created all the most amazing, huge, powerful things out there in the universe, you look after each and every one of us, and you know us so intimately. And Father, I just want to pray that we can actually just even just pay some respect back to that and honor you, Lord, as the creator of our lives, the guy who actually made us and made us capable of living, made us capable of loving and, and having a good time, Lord. And I just want to pray that we can actually say, hey, today I choose to give my life to you, to invite in your Holy Spirit, to be used for you, for your glory. And Lord, may we not get caught up in thinking that we have the rest of our life to worry about this. But Father, may we recognize that there's actually a matter of urgency to this, that we can actually sort of ignore the pressures of the world right now because we have something else to worry about. We have something else to focus on, Lord. And that is the thing that you're calling us to. That is, first of all, a relationship with you. And then second of all, to bring others into that same relationship with you. So may we not care about what others think, but may we step out boldly into that relationship with you. May we step out boldly into sharing you with the people in our lives, whether that be at work, at home, or, or at the local cafe we go to, Lord. I pray that we can be bold in our expression of faith, in our sharing of faith. And Lord, I just want to pray that we can recognize that today is the day. Right now is the time to go and share our faith. So, Lord, may we not keep this under a bushel. May we not keep our, our the light that you are in our lives hidden from the world, but may we actually go out and shine this to the people around us. So fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. We know that it, we can't do it on our own, so we depend on you and your Holy Spirit. May it guide us and lead us and teach us as we go. Be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen.